Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Mark Tokola, is the vice president of the Korea Economic Institute of America. He's a long-serving American diplomat with postings around the world, and we discuss a few of them in this episode, including his first posting to Turkey, where his main job was helping Americans sent to prison on drug trafficking charges. He also discusses and compares some of his work in the Balkans in the 1990s to Iraq after the fall of Saddam, and I think makes an important point about the value of multilateralism to American interests, something he experienced and witnessed firsthand. We spoke the day after the Security Council passed a new sanctions resolution on North Korea following yet another nuclear test in September, and we kick off discussing the implications of those sanctions before pivoting to a longer conversation about his globe-spanning career. Mark's last posting was to South Korea, and we end with some discussion about the political upheaval underway there, and also whether or not my man Ban Ki-moon may run for president next year. Mark is an alumnus of the Salzburg Global Seminar, which is a podcast sponsor this month. And at the top of the episode, we also reference a seminar about North Korean human rights in which he participated. As always, please feel free to get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com. There's a little contact button. I do love hearing from you. If you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover or anything else that's on your mind, please let me know. Uh, as I said, it, it really enriches me to learn from you. So don't hesitate to to send me an email. And now here is Mark Tokola. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, with sanctions, they never seem to work until they do. Um, this is just one more in the series of sanctions, which have been increasingly tough on North Korea. And I think these sanctions could make a difference. There are always those who argue that sanctions are the answer and the next round will solve the problem. I never think that. But I also dismiss people who say that sanctions are meaningless. They're not meaningless. I think it's demonstrable they've had an effect on North Korea. And this next round is tough. It goes after North Korea's biggest export earner, coal. Last sanctions were quite tough. These are tougher in that they uh, tighten up what look like maybe some loopholes or weaknesses in the last round of sanctions. Mm -hmm. These go further. And they specifically target uh, North Korea's biggest export earner, which is coal exports. It so, will reduce them by about two-thirds. So that's, that's, that's significant. So, uh, you know, last uh, round of sanctions were, I believe, uh, last March. And at the time, you know, these were the strongest sanctions ever imposed a against a country. It, you know, mandated that countries... Uh, uh, 
examine all cargo in and out of, of North Korea to, to their shores. Uh, yet that toughest round of sanctions ever did not prevent or stop or dissuade North Korea from testing a, a nuclear weapon in September. So, you know, if not those sanctions and if not these sanctions, then then what? Well, those last sanctions were quite innovative. I mean, 2270, those March sanctions you talked about, were the first ones that tried to restrict uh, North Korean exports or imports, not because they were just about the weapons program or weapons technology. It was actually starting to go after North Korean export earnings because they need the export earnings to fund their programs. So 2270 was something quite new. And I think that uh, the experience of trying to implement those showed some weaknesses that this current round of sanctions addresses. So, so um, mm-hmm. the livelihood exemption for the 2270 uh, um, resolution it was never quite clear what that meant. It turned out to be a much more broadly applicable loophole than people had envisioned. So the new round and the sanctions 2321 we just adopted go after that. Um, so I think these sanctions are going to help enforce the last round. We're learning how to work them. Okay, so it's it's a matter of shoring up the previous round of sanctions, and maybe this time around they will put the squeeze on North Korea and really dry up their source of of hard currency, which which you say they need to sustain their nuclear weapons programs. Yeah, by some estimates, the twenty um, three twenty one sanctions and new ones could reduce North Korea's export earnings by maybe a quarter. That's significant. They're trying to prevent, as you said, like the livelihood exemption, which is this idea that funds, you know, ought not go to military purposes, but it's okay if funds go to other state services that, you know, ostensibly help the people. How do you sort of make those distinctions? I think it's just a hard distinction to make because any money going to North Korea could be taken by the government. As you say, money is fungible. That's why I think this, uh, the last round and this round are actually trying to go after the, the cash it's not just technology. They're trying to go after North Korea's ability to pay for pay for things. Um, it's not just the coal exports. There's other things in the new sanctions. They're closing off scientific technical cooperation, which is something new. that make it harder for North Korea to cooperate with other states that might want to aid them with their nuclear ambitions. Uh, the new sanctions start getting at human rights. They talk about uh, the dignity of the North Korean people. Uh, the new sanctions include some language that could lead to suspending North Korea's privileges and rights within the United Nations. So there's lots of things in this new round of sanctions that pave the way for future steps, should those be necessary, and they probably will be. But I guess, are these effective means of of compellence? I mean, it seems that sanctions just sort of haven't worked so far. So what's to say that this worked, and what other options are there out there if if not sanctions? Yeah, well, it kind of depends what you mean by works. the sanctions are not intended to topple the regime. The sanctions are clearly not going to lead Kim Jong-un to decide to change his mind tomorrow on nuclear ambitions. I think the real purpose of sanctions is to um, make the distinction sharper, make the choice a little bit more difficult. So uh, Kim Jong-un has this policy he's described as Byung-jin, which means pursuing both economic improvements for North Korea and pursuing a weapons program. Well, if you, ch- if you close down export earnings and reduce them, it makes it harder for him to pursue that policy with both at the same time. Um, it also allows states the ability to impose unilateral sanctions because there's now UN legitimacy to do that. Uh, South Korea's already announced they're going to impose some unilateral sanctions beyond the UN sanctions. The United States could do that too. So the UN uh, is paving the way for other states to take more steps. And I suppose and the sanctions are, mm-hmm. sanctions are not the only answer. Uh, clearly, it's got to be part of a package. 
uh, diplomatic steps have to be taken trying to reduce uh, North Korea's uh, support from abroad, the little bit they have left, uh, trying to have China uh, be tougher on North Korea. I, I, think, I don't think China has been cheating. I think China has had difficulty imposing the sanctions because they were crafted in a way that allowed Chinese commercial enterprises to continue doing work as they would choose to do if they could, you know, making the sanctions uh, tougher in terms of giving less latitude for that might be something that will help the Chinese government with its own companies and try to get them to do less with North Korea. I suppose that one other you know, advantage of, of and benefit of having these sanctions is its potential to deter other countries as well from wanting to you know pursue a nuclear weapons programs. They can sort of use these tight sanctions on North Korea, North Korea's isolation as as sort of a, a good reason to not want to pursue a, a nuclear weapons program. I think that's an excellent point. Although, in fact, you know, today in the world, there are no countries other than North Korea that are pursuing a nuclear weapons program. The Non-Proliferation Treaty has been one of the great successes of diplomacy for the last 40, 50 years. So with the exception of Iran, which has now decided to abandon its nuclear program under the new agreement with the U.S., North Korea is the only one. So the NPT has been quite a success. And, and they're the only ones that have tested a, a bomb in the 21st century as well. That's correct. Um, you, you mentioned earlier uh, the human rights situation in uh, North Korea. I wanted to talk about that a bit because I feel like it's often left out of, of these discussions. I know that you participated in a, uh, a seminar in at Salzburg last year, a year and a half ago, on the situation of human rights in, in North Korea. Um, I guess, where are we today? Is it as, as bad as it ever has been? Um, what are, are some of the few things that, that people who care about foreign affairs should know about uh, the human rights situation in, in North Korea? Yeah, well, anyone who wants to follow this or look into it, I would strongly recommend that they call up the United Nations Commission of Inquiry report on human rights in North Korea. That was a, a UN-led effort from, what's it been now, three years ago, two years ago, that cataloged uh, human rights abuses in North Korea. They collected tremendous amounts of evidence. It's not really contestable. Uh, they were very judicious in the way they described what they found to be factual. And the COI report essentially finds that North Korea is the world's worst human rights abuser as a state. Uh, the situation's uh, abysmal for the North Korean people. And that is a very fundamental issue, and not one that's being ignored now. Uh, there used to be a thought that North Korean human rights were something that was less important than trying to negotiate denuclearization. That maybe you could go after human rights as long as there were no nuclear talks going. But if North Koreans began to negotiate, then you need to go easier on human rights because you didn't want to disincentivize them from doing the nuclear talks. And we don't talk that way anymore. There's a belief now that the human rights and the denuclearization are the same problem in many ways. You can't solve one without the other. Uh, the U.S. government has imposed sanctions on North Korea based on human rights abuses. That was in U.S. legislation. We've named names of North Koreans who've been responsible for abuses, and they're sanctioned individually. And as I said, this new resolution doesn't go that far, but it begins to open the door for that by talking about the dignity of North Korean people. Um, it should be a global issue. I think it's not because it's not visualized enough. There are no cameras in North Korea that are, are broadcasting pictures of prison camps or human rights abuses so the world can see them. It's all based on descriptions. That's much harder to do. You know, is it simply a matter that this situation will, will only be resolved, 
you know, once the, the state collapses in some fundamental way, or there's just some fundamental change? I mean, is there any possibility of, you know, reform in, in North Korea? I mean, it seems that that that's probably outside of the realm of possibility right now that the state seems to organize itself around these human rights abuses. I think you're right. I think the human rights abuses are very much um, part of the state apparatus at this point. You never want to give up on the possibility of reform. And I think there are some things you can do to start getting at it. I mean, North Korea has signed some conventions and nations, such as on disabled people. Mm. Um, so you can begin by taking slight steps by trying to work North Koreans on improving areas of human rights, which don't threaten the state in, in their view. So it's not hopeless, but it's a very tough slog. Ah, yes, the, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability is one of those that the United States has not ratified, but North Korea apparently that's, has. There you go. They have. That's correct. I agree. That's, uh, uh, that's, that's the situation. But anyway, the, the human rights situation is not one that should be minimized or put in the back burner. I mean, what the North Korean people have to tolerate should not be tolerated by any people. Um, so I would uh, love to trace your background, your history, how you got involved in diplomacy in in Korea, in, in North Korea. Um, so let's just kind of turn back the clock a little bit. Where are you from? Where were you born? Uh, Vancouver, Washington State. So I was born in Vancouver. My current home is in Bellingham, Washington State. So I've been a Washingtonian my entire life, although I went to college in California. Um, and what kind of family did you grow up in? Were were you were they sort of globally focused, globally looking? Uh, globally, but only to a point. Because I was a first-generation American, uh, my parents are from Finland. Uh, much of my family still lives in Finland. Uh, I grew up with a lot of Finnish Lutheran culture and Finnish youth groups, and there were always long-distance calls to Finnish relatives, lots going back and forth. I went to Finland in 1967 for a year to live with my relatives there. I saw lots of uncles, nets, and cousins come to come to Washington State. So for me, there was not such a thing as kind of foreignness. I never thought of overseas being exotic. I thought it was just a place where people's relatives lived. Huh. So Finland. So so you spent a lot of your your time growing up in in Finland. Obviously, that's a fascinating country from like a Cold War perspective. And 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 you were there sort of at the at the height of of the Cold War. Like, what was your? Do you have sort of recollections of of sort of Finland in geopolitics at the time? I actually do. That wasn't, uh, I wasn't that young at the time. I was 67, I would have been, well, I was born in 53, so I was 14. So I was becoming quite politically conscious at the time. And there was a debate between those who thought that uh, Finland needed to adhere more to a Soviet line to stay safe, and those who were more conservative who thought they should try to stay as far away from the Soviet Union as possible. Uh, my family was quite white Finnish, which means quite conservative. And so we were, we were very anti-communist at the time, and we were very critical of whenever Finland capitulated to any Soviet demands. But at the same time, I never felt that Finland was taking orders from Moscow, because having spent time there and knowing my family as I did, I always knew the Finns were maintaining independence. We just had to do it in a rather nuanced way at the time. So what were the like the nuanced ways that they, that they did that? Because I feel like we might be entering this kind of new... You know, era right now where you might expect that some countries along the um, the the western border of of Russia might sort of be faced now with like a, these kind of new ways of how to maintain independence without also not perturbing you know the the giant neighbor to their east. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's examples. So one one of the ones I remember from my youth was at one point the uh, Soviets put up signs along the Finnish border with uh, pictures of a camera with a circle the line through it, which was a no photography permitted. Huh. And so one of, the, one of the big Finnish magazines uh, took a picture of one of those signs, including a lot of territory inside of the sign. 
and put the front page of the magazine saying, uh, these new signs have been put up. So please think about adhering to them. But clearly they weren't by publishing a photo of the sign plus all the land around it. Uh-huh. <laughs> subtle, subtle ways of, of sticking it to the man. That's right. <laughs> Um, so, so you, you know, kind of grew up cross-culturally, um, and I, I, how then did you sort of get involved in, in sort of diplomacy in, in American diplomacy? How did you sort of make that, make that decision? Okay. Uh, more directly than my, one of my older cousins, uh, married a foreign service officer and they were living in Geneva. He was working with U.S. missions to the GATT. And during one of my trips abroad, I went to visit with him in Geneva and he took me to his office showed me the U.S. mission, explained the Foreign Service, and I thought, this is for me. It looked just about perfect. So I decided at a very young age to try to get into the U.S. Uh, State Department. That was an ambition of mine all along. And how did you, uh, how did you pursue that? How... Um, I did it by trying to figure out which college in the U.S. had the best chance of getting people into the Foreign Service. So I actually did it rather analytically. And <laughs> at that time, this is 19, 1976, the college in the U.S. had the highest percentage of people applying for and being accepted by the Foreign Service was Pomona College in Claremont, California. So that's where I went. There you go. Okay. And and um, you knew all along you wanted to go to the uh, Foreign Service. Do you remember your your, your uh, exam? Did they have the oral exam at the time? Uh, vividly. I could remember very well what happened there because it was such a moment. It was a simpler process. And so when people ask me about joining the Foreign Service today, I don't have much advice because it's changed completely. Mm-hmm. But in those days, uh, there was the written exam, and once you pass that, you could take the orals. And I was invited to the orals. I went to San Francisco for the orals, and first I was taken to a room and given a piece of paper and told I had 45 minutes to write an essay on the importance of dairy standards. Of dairy standards, exam. like dairy milk standards. That was, that was and cheese. Milk, you know, ice cream, yogurt. Okay. So I can write about it. So I was given that task. I was about 20 minutes into it. They said, came in and said, that's enough. And so. <laughs> and that's why they're just messing with you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't feel all that serious. And then the oral exam was sitting around with three uh, FSOs who then asked questions about baseball and my favorite jazz musicians. And it was very casual. Um, it was quite informal. And so that's how that went. And they said, we'll be in touch later. Uh, so that's, that was the examination process. It's become much more. Uh, uh, objective now in much more detail. Mm-hmm. They, they probably want to get a sense of you as like a person as opposed to your sort of knowledge of world affairs. That was my impression. They just wanted to see if I could uh, articulate, if I knew how to ask questions, if I knew how to stop giving an answer. Mm-hmm. And one of the key skills that point you also knew was to quit talking when you were through talking. Just not ramble on to fill time, but stop when you're done. Um, so where was your first posting then? First posting was in uh, Adana, Turkey. This was 1976. So after I was accepted to the Foreign Service, I came back to Washington and spent a few months in the A100 program, the Foreign Service boot camp. And then during that process, everyone received their assignment. I had a straight choice of going to uh, Mozambique or going to um, Turkey. So I consulted with my wife at the time. We just got married in 1976 in December. And we agreed Turkey is probably a better option for us. And so we went off to Adana. Which was a three-person consulate. Now, is is Turk the language Turkish and, and Finnish? They share some similarities, don't they? You are you are exactly right, and it actually made it easy for me to learn uh, Turkish. Uh, we had forty-four weeks of Turkish language training before I went to Adana, and I found the grammar quite familiar. So, can can I ask you? Do you know why that is? Because I've always sort of known it's sort of like a, a trivia question that I know that Turkish and Finnish are somehow similar languages. Like, how historically is that the case? Do you know that? 
Well, I mean, I've, I've heard the stories. I'm not sure all scholars agree on that, but it seems, there seems to be some consensus that they were a common people who came out of uh, Central Asia and they moved westwards. There's a migration. Ah, okay. And the Finns moved north and the Turks moved south. Uh, Finnish is also very much close to Hungarian. They feel quite similar in grammar, I'm told. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkish a little more distantly. So in the mid-70s in, in Turkey, what were your big, big, big tasks? I mean, I suppose you're probably a junior officer. You're probably processing visa requests sort of thing. Um, but what were some of the big issues that the embassy, that, that your consulate was dealing with at the time? Yeah, I actually avoided the visa situation uh-huh. because Adana in the South was not a visa-issuing post. We were very small. There were only three of us there. So I was the political economic officer. Um, so I did end consular. The consular only meant visiting the jailed Americans uh, who were in southern Turkey at the time and trying to assist Americans who were in difficulty traveling through. We didn't do visas. Mm-hmm. We did birth certificates, if I, if I recall. So with only three of us there, we sort of all did everything. So you were visiting Turkish time, prisons in the mid-1970s. Those cannot have been pleasant. It's That's worth a podcast of its own. The American prisoners who were in Adana in the prisons at the time Originally, there were seven of them that were arrested uh, about uh, seven years before I got there. They'd been sentenced to death originally, and then life sentences. And then of that group, by the time I got there, there were only three left. The rest had been released at one point or other. What had they done? What, was there, what were they convicted of? Drugs crimes? Drugs crimes. Not just a little bit. They'd driv- driven up from um, um, Syria with Volkswagen vans packed full of hash. So it wasn't a small thing. Um, not very deniable. But anyway, the, the three that were left when I got there were given the opportunity to serve out their time in U.S. prisons. We negotiated a deal. So if um, we and the Turks agreed that these prisoners could be transferred to the States, and they chose not to be. That's... Because it actually kind of settled, they settled into the Turkish prison system. They were able to do handicrafts to make money. Uh, they knew the system very well. They were buying outside food. Well, I, saw, I saw them weekly. They had quite a bit of support from the U.S., um, U.S. Air Force Base nearby gave them library lending privileges, uh, holiday meals. It, it was a system that hadn't been worked out. They weren't, of course, they didn't want to be there, but they knew how to do it and preferred to finish their time there. And in the end, uh, they were released too. Uh, so after I left, it was only a couple more years, and they, they were also released. Huh. That's that's a fascinating decision and, and choice to make. But what was your so so you were there as just basically supporting them as as like a, a young foreign service officer? You have these Americans oh, yeah. behind bars, and it's your kind of duty to do what you can to represent their interests as best you can. Oh sure, I, I took in mail uh, any complaints they had. Um, we actually relied on them to help Americans who also ended up in the same prison because we had a big Air Force base nearby, it's still there, the Indrilik Air Base. Now and then, Americans get in trouble and would end up in jail, and the Americans that were my three colleagues who were there, our, our permanent prisoners, actually were quite a bit of assistance to Americans who landed up in jail, helping them understand what was going on. So they were actually quite useful. Um, so how long did you spend in Turkey? Let's see, I was there from 1977 to 1979. Uh, this was also the year that we had the revolution in Iran. So one of the things that we did that was memorable was having to drive out to the eastern border of Turkey with Iran to try to help any Americans who are trying to get out uh, right when the revolution was happening. And were, were there Americans that were trying to, to cross the border at the time, trying to like sneak out, essentially? Not that border. Uh, we were there because we thought there might be, but I, we never saw any Americans come across that border at that time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and, and what was your next posting? 
Oh, I'm trying to remember now. See, after Turkey, I went back to the State Department. Yeah. And so I worked there as a staff assistant in the Bureau of European Affairs. I was a staff assistant to a terrific assistant secretary named George Vest, uh, probably still my model diplomat. He was a wonderful man. So I worked for him for the year of 1980. Uh, again, that was quite a year. This is the year Tito died, which is the year the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. So there was a lot going on at that time. I was a staff assistant, so my job was to get around all of the cable traffic the night before and try to sort it for my bosses to read. So I was sort of seeing everything, I was carrying notes around the building. Uh, Warren Christopher, Secretary of State, uh, we had the Iranian hostages released and arrive at the State Department while I was there at that time. So it wasn't one issue. There were a lot of things going on. But the Yugoslav part was kind of a preview of, the, of, of much of the rest of my career. I spent a lot of time working on Balkan issues then. And, and how did you, did you first engage in, in the Balkans? Uh, well, first as a staff assistant like during that year in 1980. And then when I went to uh, Brussels to work at the U.S. mission to the European communities, uh, we were there for the breakup of, of um, Yugoslavia. And so I was trying to follow the Europeans' uh, deliberations. I don't know if people remember this, the Vance Owen plan. We had Cyrus Vance come to Brussels often. Uh, Lord David Owen, the British vast, uh, diplomat, was involved in trying to find a peaceful solution. Uh, there was a great effort made to try to provide Yugoslavia with carrots and sticks to hold them together. We thought at the time that economic carrots and sticks would make a difference. They didn't. It made no difference at all. So I just saw it fall apart piece by piece. Uh, first, the government of Yugoslavia failing, and then Slovenia leaving, and then recognition of Slovenia and uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Croatia. It was a very depressing, dismal time. Um, I mean, why why was it d- depressing to you at the time? Was it because your goal was to hold Yugoslavia together and it was falling apart? Or was it because that you realized that these kind of nationalist forces that had been unleashed by the dissolution of Yugoslavia might lead to someplace very dark? It was a latter. Uh, this was not a great surprise. Uh, there a lot of many people predicted that when Yugoslavia fell apart, there would be conflict in Yugoslavia. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I went to college even earlier than that. One of my professors said, when Tito dies, there's going to be a horrible, bloody civil war in Yugoslavia. And we thought he was mad. We thought it was a progressive European country with a beautiful coastline and cosmopolitan um, institutions and peoples. We couldn't see it, but some people did. And especially when we started seeing the rise of nationalism within Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, we started seeing the rhetoric from Milosevic and others. And we, we knew it was going to be bad. And it was clearly perceived that Bosnia and Herzegovina, it was recognized would break out in conflict. This was not a surprise to anybody, I don't think. What was the first indication to you personally that things were, were taking a terrible turn? Oh, that's a good question. I really can't point to any one thing. Um, when you had visited, I assume you had visited Sarajevo and, and were visiting um, the, the, you know, the former Yugoslavia at the time. I mean, was there... I had I, I not, I, not been there yet. This is when I was working on European issues in Brussels. And mm-hmm. then I worked back in the State Department in the in European Regional Bureau. So at that point, we were still trying to hold Yugoslavia together. Um, I, went to, I went to Sarajevo in 1996 for the first time. So after well in, well in the war. Mm-hmm. And I served there from 97 to 99. So I was in Sarajevo after things broken out. But from a distance, we could see it was going to end badly. Um, and I, I guess what sort of preparations were, were you making, was the U.S. government making at the time, sort of with the understanding that it, you know this is probably going to end up pretty badly? Um, tried very hard all the way along to find a solution. Uh, of course, diplomats like to think there's some negotiated solution that can work. 
And so the idea that maybe some partitions could be arranged, uh, you could allow people to separate into ethnic communities and they could coexist. There was still some hope for diplomacy, but uh, I actually met a doctor who was, um, let's see, where was he from now? He was from Sarajevo. And he said he knew things had gone bad when he asked the central authorities in Belgrade for his usual separate supplies for his hospital in Sarajevo. And they said, no, we need all we've got for, for the Serbs. Hmm. So there were, there were lots of little indicators out there that it was going to be a, a bad situation. Uh, so you uh, arrived in Sarajevo. I suppose it was it was after the the, the siege had ended of of Sarajevo, That's right? Correct. You said so. That's the right. siege ended what nineteen ninety five, and you were there in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, like that. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember the sequence of things now. I was I was in um, it was Brussels. Uh, we had a lot of diplomats flying through Brussels on the way to Bosnia, coming out doing some negotiations still. So people like Robert Fraser or Warren Christopher, we saw come through. And try to negotiate, or not negotiate, try to cooperate with the Europeans to find some way to avoid this catastrophe. It was a, it was a, it was a very heartfelt, uh, sincere effort. And so, what was your job I, then I, in 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 Sarajevo in '96? Like, what were you doing on on a day to day basis in the middle of of this of this war? Um, the first time I went was with a NATO tour, so I took some NATO people to see the situation there. I moved back permanently in '97. Uh, I was there two years. My my job was to be the political minister counselor and economic minister counselor. So and, I ran the political and economic sections of the embassy. Like try to help implement the Dayton Accords, which were which were agreed in what nineteen ninety five. Yeah, and that was the job. We were trying to implement the Dayton Peace Accords. Uh, it was a very international effort, and so I spent a lot of time working with the I four and the S four, the military. A lot of time with the Office of the High Representative, uh, the European Union, the UN Mission to Bosnia Herzegovina, the Council of Europe. They were all there, and so we spent a lot of time coordinating daily on what we could all do individually to help help move the process forward. I did a lot of work on justice reform, working with the uh, UN mission. But the difference between Sarajevo and Baghdad, where I went later, was very much that Sarajevo was a multilateral effort. And there were people that brought things to the table that we didn't have. So, so being able to coordinate mm -hmm. with the European Union to say, you folks are better than we are, and trying to organize parliamentary systems, elections, European legal systems, please work on that. There are things we're very good at, and so let's let's separate out the efforts. Um, and and so take me through a, a little bit of the like the, the justice sector reform work you did. I have to imagine that after years of of war, um, you know, prior to that, years of of sort of communism, that there was a pretty there was probably like a, a weak justice system. But it, but it, you know, like you said, it's it's an educated populace. There was probably yeah. an effort and a, and a need to want to train up lawyers and, and judges. And it's, it's interesting because I, I know some people who did that kind of work in in Baghdad as as well in like two thousand four, and and also like you know try to train judges right. and in Baghdad. Baghdad, and it was just like a, you know, in in a situation where there just had not been a, a legal system to speak of. Oh, well, there had been one. They were trying to reach for a different one. It was different Yugoslavia because they had a court system that wasn't bad, um, and so we were trying to uh, improve the system. Uh, they had the notion of judges and lawyers, and the things we did that I think worked were trying to organize associations. We tried to organize a bar association and a judge association and prosecutor association to give the people some confidence that they had peers and they could share best practices and um, have their own ways of doing things. That, was, that wasn't bad. Uh, we made false starts and then made some good decisions. There was a lot of learning that went on. Um, for example, we decided to try to hire um, people to observe courts. We thought just put people in the courts to watch trials. 
and they report on how they're going. Professional, fair, are they applying law correctly? And so we put ads in newspapers asking for court observers to come work for the UN uh, mission. The US was assisting this effort. And the people who applied for the court observer positions were the judges. Huh. Because, it, because we were paying more and the judges were being paid. <laughs> and so we had to say, no, this is not the point of it. So get back on the bench. <laughs> we want you to do your job. We're here to try to watch what you're doing. And then a lot of the young Bosnians and Croats and Serbs who were hiring to be court observers were passionate about the job. That's why they applied to take the positions. And they could not sit still and watch a trial go wrong. So they would jump up and say, this isn't right. And then we had difficulty with that. So there's a lot of learning that went on. Uh, so you mentioned you were in uh, Baghdad after uh, the the invasion and occupation in in two thousand and three. Um, I was there from uh, I was there from May of uh, May of seven to May of eight was my year in Baghdad. And I, I guess how um, you know as as a, a civil servant you're you're probably not supposed to have a an opinion about the wisdom of the foreign of the decision to. Uh, you know, having invade and, and occupy Iraq, you're just sort of you know, supposed to do the best you can in the circumstances that are presented to you to, you know, to, to engineer a, a decent outcome for, for U.S. interests and, and for global interests as well. But um, how did you, I suppose, approach that, that job in, in Baghdad at the time? Um, the reason that they asked me to do Baghdad is because I had done Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while to get there. I think the U.S. government. I'm retired now, so I can speak off. Oh yeah, no, point. that's why. That, that's that's why yeah, we're talking. <laughs> yeah, in uh, Baghdad, the initial thought was we need to go in and do it quickly. Uh, the thought was the people who'd been involved in the Balkan efforts had not done well with it. Had been too slow. Uh, we were in Sarajevo too long. The U.S. got too involved, and so we're going to avoid those mistakes. So there's very little they can teach us. The people who were involved in the Balkans. We're going to bring in people who can uh, create a quick. Uh, liberal de- market and quick democracy, and we're going to do it fast and leave. So that was the instinct. And so they weren't very interested first in people of Balkan experience. But as years went on, they started thinking maybe there were some lessons from Bosnia that we could apply to, to Iraq. At that point, they began looking for more people with Balkan experience. And so I was part of that group. that They, they tapped to see if they could uh, transfer lessons. And Were you able to? I mean, was there some success there? No. No, it was completely different. And so I have to say that the experience in Sarajevo did not help in Baghdad. The two big differences were in um, Sarajevo, we had the Dayton Peace Accords, which gave Dayton powers to the international community. So we could actually fire individual um, uh, citizen, uh, officials in Bosnia who were not helping implement the Accords. So if there was somebody being an obstructionist, even at low government levels, they could be removed. We rarely had to do that because the threat was enough. So there's a lot of um, ability to leverage local governance to work toward the solution of the Dayton Peace Accords, which were going to be temporary. It was never the final solution. It was a way to move the country forward. In Iraq, we did not have that kind of a, a situation. There was no agreement or settlement at the end of the conflict that allowed outside forces, the U.S. in this case, to be able to uh, leverage local authorities. Mm-hmm. We were trying to work with local authorities in helping them achieve their objectives, which was good. We didn't have any power over them. Uh, so it was a different story. And as I mentioned earlier, the difference also was in Sarajevo, it was a truly international effort. We had a lot of people on the ground with a lot of expertise in different areas. Uh, in Baghdad, we had some allies. It's absolutely true the Japanese were there, uh, British were there to help, but it was very much more a U.S. effort by percentage. 
And the U.S. can't do everything. We don't have all the skill sets we need to deal with trying to do that kind of a project. Um, and where did you end up after Iraq? I mean, did you leave with a, like a sense of disillusionment, with a, a sense that you know there are you know real limits to uh, American power in ways that you probably had not experienced before as a diplomat? Um, actually, not. It was kind of a different experience. The year I was there, oh seven to oh eight, was a year of great progress. Mm-hmm. This was the year of the surge. It was the year of the uh, the. Uh, Sunni uprising that we were able to use this Arab Spring. Maybe things were happening, not the Arab Spring. Others were happening that were not bad. Uh, the, the violence decreased during that year. We had more access to projects during the year. We got more started. And most importantly, we got the Iraqis to pay for more of it. So my individual project was uh, infrastructure development, including schools and hospitals and water treatment plants and power plants. In May of 07, uh, the U.S. was paying about 90% of the cost of all of that, those projects. By the time we left in May of 08, we were paying about 10%. The Iraqis had picked up the other 80%. So the, the switch was a good one. Mm-hmm. Of the 140 some odd uh, healthcare clinics we built, 130 were functioning by, by the time we left. So it was it was a good year uh, for, for us. I didn't a lot of that wasn't sustainable, I'm afraid. But things were getting better. Uh, if you want me to uh, criticize the project, the thing I will say about it that was wrong from my point of view, in my narrow area was that we were asked to go too quickly. I kept telling people who came to uh, Iraq to see how we were doing to give me half the budget and twice the time. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I had more time, I could have done a lot more. But we were in a great hurry to show success very quickly. And that meant that we couldn't let the Iraqis make mistakes. So if they were doing a project to build a water treatment plant and it wasn't going well, we had to elbow them aside and go in with U.S. contractors and do it because we had to have the project succeed. Uh, my choice would have been to let them, let them fail and then learn from that and then try again. So it was that it was the tempo that was bad, the the pressure to spend money quickly and to finish things quickly. Um, we should have more time. So I'm I'm curious to learn how you ended up uh, in Korea. I mean, we, you had your 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 career in Turkey and in in Europe and in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, there there's some geographic consistency between those. Uh, but then there's yeah. there's Korea. You know, on, on the other side of the world. How how did that happen? Well, there's also uh, Mongolia. I was a deputy admission U.S. Embassy Ulan Batar, also at one point. So I had some some Asian experience there. Ah, okay. And in college, I, in, in college, I was a China major. I did three years of Chinese language and did a lot of local um, politics and culture during that training. And so I had some Asian background from that. But the main reason I went to Korea was because uh, the ambassador in Seoul at the time, Master Kathy Stevens, who's a great ambassador, I knew from Europe. She had been the um, Consul General in Belfast, and we've done this work together in Europe. She's a true Korea expert. She'd been the Peace Corps in Korea, speaks beautiful Korean, and served multiple tours there. And so she called me, um, yeah, where was it? I was in London, and said that I don't need someone to come out and be a Korea expert. I'm the Korea expert. I need someone to come out and help me run the embassy uh-huh. and to work with the Europeans here in other countries and work with the military. I had a lot of military background. So I was able to fill that kind of slot for her. And then during the time there, I learned a lot about what's going on in Korea because those were dramatic years for Korea. So what was going on? Let's, yeah, yeah. Uh, talk us through the sort of the history of, of Korea as you experienced it in, in that time. Yeah, this was 2009 to 12. And so these were the years that uh, of the Kim Dae-jung funeral. It was the years the North Koreans torpedoed the South Korean a naval ship to Chona and sank it. It was the years they shelled Yongpyong Island. We had uh, three visits from President Obama during my during my time there. We had, uh, they were in charge of G20. 
I'd done the G20 summit in London and then got in Seoul in time to do the G20 summit in Seoul, helped organize that. We had a nuclear security summit where President Obama helped organize mm -hmm. to talk about um, non-state proliferation, what we could do about it. Uh, the president came for a bilateral meeting with President Lee Myung Bok, and so it was a very intense couple of years. So, talk talk us through what what's it like? And Kim Jong Il died, mm -hmm. so that was also that North Korea. As as a, a sort of a top ranking diplomat in a in a foreign embassy, um, how does a, a presidential visit sort of shape your uh, agenda, or or how do you um, how does that influence your 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 work and your ability to to go about your day to day work and and, and sort of advance whatever agenda that you might have? Uh, they're fabulous opportunities. You really welcome presidential visit because it gives you a chance to get involved in a lot of things. Yeah, working with your foreign contacts to make the visit happen, uh, helping Washington think about the agenda for the meetings, suggesting uh, venues for possible meetings outside of the main meeting, whatever it's going to be. Uh, it's an exciting time and one you can really take advantage of. It focuses everybody on the relationship. You also have this great desire to find deliverables, as they call them. You want to find things that can be done while the president's visiting to advance relationship. So what did you? So what, there, what sort of deliverables did you identify? Because that that's, that seems to be a really real tangible outcome of these kinds of visits. Um, they can be small things. I mean, they can be as, as simple as trying to avoid problems in trade relationships. You can say that if you have a, if you have a problem in vehicle imports or exports, you can say we don't have this problem. The problem on the presence here. Let's solve it now. Get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So it can be simple things, or you can get cooperative agreements. Um, we've got a wonderful relationship between uh, USAID and the Peace Corps and the Korean equivalent, because we wanted to have an agreement between the two of them to showcase, which we wanted anyway, but it let us, let, it let us speed up a little bit. So mm -hmm. these are good things. And did you have some personal interactions with the president during that time? I have to imagine that's kind of an exciting thing for, for an embassy staff as well. Oh, it's thrilling. It's absolutely great. It's uh, one of the things that I hope will happen. And to have it happen more than once during a, during a tour is uh, quite unusual. No, it's, it's, it's great. It's exciting. I mean, I, I, the entire time when, you know, when you're in, in South Korea, South Korea, of course, there's this, like the looming issue of, of North Korean uh, proliferation with which we just discussed. Um, you know, and at the same time, you know, obviously, you know, South Korea is, is, is like a, a major partner of the U.S. and an economic powerhouse on its own. I mean, how much of the day-to-day -day operation of the U.S. Embassy in South Korea is focused, is, is dominated by the, the sort of North Korean nuclear issue versus other issues uh, that, that are relevant on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to give you a percentage because it wouldn't be fair. Um, a lot of, most of the work by far is about U.S. Uh, Republic of Korea relations. But because there is no embassy in Pyongyang and because a lot of dealing with North Korea involves U.S.-South Korean cooperation, We've got to see things the same way, cooperate on how to deal with the North. That leads the U.S. Embassy in Seoul to do quite a bit of work on North Korea. Can't be helped. Plus, there are European ambassadors who are assigned to Pyongyang who don't live there, who travel up from Seoul. So a chance to work with our colleagues who are seeing more of North Korea firsthand also has a good window on, on that world. Um, and so now you are uh, at a, a – what's the name of the organization? The, the Korean – uh, we, we're at the Korea Economic Institute. So that you, you're, yeah, so you're at the Korea Economic Institute. How did uh, what do you do there now? What's what's your work focused on a day to day basis? Yeah, I'm, I'm the vice president's organization. Uh, we're not big, but we're focused on Korea. There, we have about nine staff members and four interns. Uh, we're a part think tank and part public outreach organization. So the think tank part, we encourage scholarship on North Korea or in South Korea, excuse me, on the peninsula. 
we do a lot of our own writing, but we also in, in, encourage scholarship. So we commission papers, we hold seminars and symposiums, we go to university uh, events on, on the peninsula. Uh, we interact with the Korean think tanks around town or people who work on Korea. So in part, we're academic, think tanky, but the other part is public outreach. One of our missions is to talk to the American public about the U.S.-Korea relationship. So unlike some other organizations in town, we spend a lot of time outside the city. So in this last year, I've been to El Paso and Columbus, Georgia, uh, Portland, Seattle, um, other cities to talk about the relationship. Sometimes for university programs, sometimes for world affairs councils. But we really want to talk to the American public about the value of the relationship. And and what is like like what what's your your elevator pitch on the value of the U.S. South Korea relationship? I can do it for you very quickly. It's the first factoid I trot out because I like it so much. So if you look at the world today, there are many countries that are big but not rich. I would include Russia, China, India, Indonesia in that category, Brazil, large populations, but not that high per capita GDPs. Then you've got a bunch of countries that are quite wealthy but quite small. So in the Netherlands. Norway, uh, Bahrain, countries like that. So if you look at the world and say, how many countries in the world are both big and rich? So let's pick big as meaning over 50 million in population. That's not a bad number. So over 50 million and per capita GDP over $20,000 a year per person. That's relatively wealthy. If that's your category, there are only seven countries in the world that qualify as big and rich. So there are four in Europe, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, which shows that Europe still matters. Outside of Europe, only the US, Japan and South Korea. And, and so, so, Korea is, mm-hmm. so South Korea is part of a very elite group of countries that are both large and wealthy. And, and like a lot of these other elite countries, South Korea right now is in a, a period of somewhat of, of a political upheaval. Uh, the uh, president has, has announced that she will resign. Um, yet, you know, the, um, well, I'm wondering first, do you expect her to, to follow through on, on that announcement in, in terms of, of her resignation? Uh, and also, you know, I, I'm more of a, of a UN focused person and there's lots of speculation around the United Nations that Ban Ki-moon may return home when, well, he said he will return home when his, um, when his term expires and possibly consider a, a run for the presidency him, himself. Do you see that as, as sort of a likely outcome? Uh, who knows? And this is just kind of raw speculation. Everyone likes to guess about who, whether Ban Ki-moon might run for the presidency or not. He hasn't said, and so we'll see. Uh, there's a lot of interest in his candidacy, but, but I, it's, that's to be determined. Is um, he generally popular? Ban Ki-moon? Yeah. Uh, famous, well-known, um, does well in polls right now, but one wonders if that's because he's not a candidate yet. Yeah. If he became a candidate, maybe he'd be a little bit tougher. Uh, he's been away quite a while. Uh, he's been on both sides of the political fence. He was a progressive during the, during the Obi-Hud administration. So he's been on both sides of the Korean spectrum. So I, I, it's not, not a shoe-in. He couldn't walk in and ask for the presidency. But if he ran, he'd be a very strong candidate, clearly. So I, we'll see. Uh, on President Park's resignation, I think what she actually said was that she would resign if the National Assembly made a decision for her to do so. Ah, okay. Then the scenery party, her party, still holds a majority of the National Assembly. So she's kind of punted to the assembly to make a decision. Um, so she's done that. That's a democratic move of sorts, but the National Assembly doesn't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> um, when do you think this will all sort of be sorted out, the, 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 her future, her political future, and, and what the National Assembly will end up doing? 
Well, the definition of uh, sorting it out is December 2017 when the next presidential election is scheduled. Ah, okay. But something may well, it may well happen before then. There are going to be elections in December next year, no matter what happens. But I think most observers uh, expect to have elections before that. Spring, maybe. Uh, it's hard to know. It depends on the street demonstrations. depends if the political parties in Korea can figure out who they want to have run for the presidency. I'm not sure anyone's ready for elections today. There's a lot of sorting out to do on both sides. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark and the folks at Salzburg for putting this one together. If you've not already done so, check out the Patreon page at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Click on the, um, the support the show link where you can support the show. And I hope, hope, hope you do. I want to keep bringing this show to you at a high quality as I can for as long as I can. And so I depend on your support for doing so. All right. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.